The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A warm welcome to this Tuesday edition of Scorebox. These are your headlines. The charm offensive ends the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, dropping its $39 billion bid for the LSE, admitting it failed to convince the London Bourse of its strategically compelling vision. Stocks across Asia rise ahead of high-level US-China trade talks, even as Washington blacklists more Chinese firms. Samsung beats estimates despite signaling a 56% fall in third quarter profit, while guidance suggests a turnaround is on the way for memory chip prices. Business Group is reportedly set to reveal a restructuring plan, including further job cuts, with new CEO Martina Mez presenting her proposals at a leadership meeting today. Right, so let's get to our top story. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange has dropped its $39 billion bid for the London Stock Exchange. HKEX said it continued to believe a tie-up is, quote, strategically compelling, but that it had been unable to engage with management of the LSE to realise this vision. HKEX shares have risen following the news. Well, let's get out to Juliana, who is with us from outside of the London Stock Exchange. And uh, Giuliano, obvious disappointment for the HKEX, but who is most relieved by them pulling this bid? The LSE or the mainland Chinese markets? Oh, it's a good question, Steve. Well, I think we should focus on the Hong Kong exchange at first. And you just mentioned there the positive share price reaction we've seen in the Hong Kong exchange shares. And uh, that's given that at the moment, at the at the moment, given LSE board, LSE management, uh, were not willing to engage with Hong Kong, it looks like we were going to see them have to go hostile should they continue with this deal. And we already saw Hong Kong shares react negatively since that September 11th surprise uh, offer. So if they were to continue with this deal, they would likely have to raise their uh, offer price and raise the cash component, which would become uh, obviously a lot more costly for the Hong Kong side of things. But let me just run you through uh, precisely what they said. So they'd continue to see uh, compelling strategic logic for this tie-up, as you mentioned there in the headlines. Uh, But given the fact that LSC management refused to engage properly, they didn't think it was in the best interest of their own shareholders to continue with this deal. Now, they have to walk away and stay away for six months under UK takeover code unless anything substantially changes in the LSE situation or unless LSE uh, somehow decides to engage themselves. And of course, we're looking now at November, which is when the Refinitiv deal is set to go to shareholders at the LSE and they will vote on that deal. So uh, barring that deal falling apart, it looks as though this deal is uh, stopped in its tracks. Now coming on to what this means for Hong Kong exchange moving forward and your point about what this might mean for mainland China. Uh, they, uh, In a blog post, the chief exec at Hong Kong exchange, Charles Lee, said the vision for the business looking forward is to build upon the role we already play in Hong Kong, China, Asia, and more widely. So uh, suggesting that he's putting to 
arrest the idea of pursuing a deal with a Western exchange. And of course, we heard from the mainland Chinese side through the People's Daily uh, applauding the LSE for walking for, for uh, rejecting this deal initially uh, and instead preferring the Shanghai uh, mainland as their way to access China. Now, given the conversations I've had over the last weeks, including yesterday with uh, St- Stephen Grove from Vision 57, wouldn't necessarily rule out Hong Kong Exchange looking at uh, a backup plan uh, eventually. And we've, of course, got Deutsche Börse. If we look across Europe at what other exchanges might fit their uh, strategic vision. Uh, but of course, that would come with major political and regulatory uncertainty itself. So by no means is that a, 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 a sure path that they could pursue. But something I would say you shouldn't rule out at this stage. And then finally, coming to the LSE side of things, uh, as I mentioned, we've got the refinitive vote coming up in November. And uh, what we've seen in terms of share price reaction and shareholder remarks since that deal was announced in August, they've got pretty ample support for that deal. And uh, shareholders like the direction it takes them, and they think it's a strategically uh, compelling path for the LSE. And for them, it looks like they're going to stick to that moving forward. So that's where things stand at the moment. Uh, We'll, of course, look to see how LSE shares react when that stock opens later on. Guys? All right. Lots of context there. Thank you very much indeed for that, Juliana. So there are so many levels we can look at this at. And and you and I have discussed with Jeffrey so many times Splinternet. And of course, you've had some amazing interviews with some tech people have talked about that now. Do we have to look at this in a prism of protectionism as well, i.e. markets making delineations? Or is that just a little bit too much of a stretch? Maybe too much of a stretch for me, but I think the timing was wrong because the Hong Kong demonstrations on the ground make it incredibly difficult for those in London to think about signing up with an exchange that's right in the middle of all of those threats, particularly around listings, whether the environment is right for, for companies to want to list in Hong Kong with all that transpiring. Don't forget Saudi Aramco has been one of the big listings that exchanges have been seeking to capture, Mm. particularly exchanges like Hong Kong. So you've got to say there's been enormous threat. And I wonder whether they just bide their time because don't forget Charles Lee is a former investment banker. Mm -hmm. So investment bankers tend to like to do deals. If he can survive the next stretch, will he try and revive another deal? Sure, but investment bankers... The ones I've known, they, they very rarely show their best hand straight away. And as Juliana was pointing out, unless anything substantially changes, they've got to wait six months now. And a lot can happen, as you say, politically, regulatory, uh, and indeed to capital markets as a whole in that period as well. So I'm surprised that they showed their best shot straight away. Or maybe they didn't. They just saw that the fact that the uh, Mr. Schwimmer uh, and the rest of the LSE management team just did not want to engage. And hence, there was no point showing any more of their hand. Well, we know management teams get it wrong. And the South China Morning Post did a big story yesterday, effectively saying they waited too long. There's a board meeting last year in September where effectively the idea of this type of deal had been floated. They just were very slow coming to market. And then, of course, by the time they did, the protests had then started. And then it was and a, dare I say, NC had moved challenge. down a path with Refinitiv as well. Right, of course. So perhaps they were just a bit too slow moving on this M&A. But the logic, and this is what gets me, because the Hong Kong Exchange needs to expand its offering to try and bring in more companies and not simply Chinese companies to diversify its interest base. And what this exchange would have created was an 18-hour trading window between Asia mm. and Europe. And if you think about that, there anywhere, a challenge. Though, isn't it, to be well, fair. not with exchanges that are linked up. And I think that's quite a big counterweight to the, some of those US exchanges. Mm. So there is logic. Sure. Uh, on your last point, if I just jump in... Uh, we can trade 24 hours if we wanted to. I mean, I managed to turn my phone off just before I went to bed last night as well. But I could have been on there for hours sending back emails and looking at markets and what have you as well. But the other point I wanted to make, and just moving this back to the refinitive side of the equation, 
is about the rationale for M&A in this sector. Now, for most of this century, when we've been discussing the rationale, it's about exchange consolidation offsetting the threat uh, of multilateral trading facilities. Johnny come lately, so to speak, who have come onto the scene with less costs and have put the trading on screen and been able to just kind of sive up that volume that was primarily with the big exchanges. So that was why defensively exchanges originally did mm. their deals. Now, with this uh, deal with Refinitiv, they're moving to the data side. Look, and it's no secret that companies such as CNBC have to get their data from somewhere, of course. And as such, we have to potentially pay for that data, as do all the market participants, as does anybody wanting to look at that. And if you can control the data as well, then you can control a very interesting cost base, which offsets the decline in volumes that we're seeing on trading platforms. Yeah, I wonder whether we could exchange, call the Hong Kong exchange deal with the LSE, one that is very old-fashioned M&A, one about size and scale and breadth across geographies mm. versus the Refinitiv LSE type of deal would be a new age deal around digital and, and yeah. sort of data I think trade. you can say that. Yeah, very much so. And that's the decision a lot of CEOs need to make right now. Do you, do you go for volume and scale to try and protect your borders and your business or do you go for a new type of positioning around data? Yeah, look, I think Xavier Rowley did a fantastic job uh, and, I, and Mr. Schwimmer seems to be doing a very competent job as well. But I think Xavier Rowley took the London Stock Exchange from being prey that was going to potentially be taken over, dare I say it, under the previous management, the likes of Dame Clara first, where, let's face it, London became a diminished um, diminished uh, uh, power, so to speak, in global exchanges. And then Xavier Rollet, they bought um, vertical operations, including clearing houses. They went to look for big deals overseas as well. And as such, made A, the company acquirer, and B, a greater breadth for the London Stock Exchange. Hence why these shares, I mean, look at these shares. I remember this company. I mean, we can go back years. I, I remember it was about four quid. Look at it, it's seventy-five pounds. Give or take the change now. Maybe come off a little bit with that bid having uh, pulled away. Yeah, just one other point around leverage too. At this point in the cycle, yes. because that comes into with the Hong Kong exchange here. That effectively the market was a bit worried that it would take them too much financial leverage in a deal like this. So the fact that it is not proceeding, maybe that's a positive. I, I, do you know what? I, I know that I'm a bleating in the wilderness, but leverage. You see this story about Pizza Express bondholders today, which is the UK, obviously restaurant franchise as well. You saw the rally we saw in AMS shares yesterday when they didn't go for their mm -hmm. Osram Lick bid at this stage as well. So you can see people are beginning to get a little bit concerned about leverage and a bit relieved in many cases. Yeah, no one wants when too the much leverage happen. going into a downward cycle. We don't know when that downtick is coming, but we all know it is coming at yeah. least in the next couple of years. And we've seen other deals going into 2008 where there was too much leverage and those were the companies that uh, suffered the pain when we effectively saw the liquidity crunch. Uh, let's push on to the rest of the story around Hong Kong as Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam has said her government has no plans to use emergency powers to bring in other laws. This after the Chinese territory invoked colonial era legislation to ban the use of face masks, sparking protests between anti-government activists and authorities. Speaking earlier, Lam did not rule out requesting help from Beijing to quell the unrest. At this point in time, I still strongly feel that we should find the solutions ourselves. That uh, that is also the position of the central government, that Hong Kong should tackle the problem on her own. Okay. But if the situation becomes so bad, then no options could be ruled out if we want Hong Kong to at least um, to have another chance.
U.S. senators have hit out at the NBA after the league appeared to side with China over the Hong Kong protests. An executive from the Houston Rockets backed activists but later apologized for his comments. We'll get more from Eunice right after that break. And coming up on the show, the U.S. moves to add more Chinese companies to an economic blacklist. What this means for this week's trade talks after the break. And one of my favorite pieces of listening when I'm not on the show is listening to myself on the Squawk Box Europe podcast. Yes, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. I'm told it's free as well. Uh, and for our listeners, well, stick around for more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. It was a weekday for stocks on Wall Street. Uh, Donald Trump tweeting effectively that uh, U.S.-China trade talks uh, were, of course, on the agenda, but that a quick trade deal was unlikely. So as the market watches and counts down to this high-level discussion later on this week, Thursday and Friday, a bit of disappointment coming through from that tweet. And you can see the market reaction. Stocks stayed side uh, very much on the back foot. In uh, case if you are a technician out there, we did see uh, Dow Jones Transports across their 50-day moving average. Um, that crossed below the 200-moving day average, which is commonly called a death cross. So one to note out there for the market uh, watchers, but also on the S&P 500, we saw that close below its 50-day moving average as well. So just one to to watch as we saw a little bit of red ink and not a huge percentage falls, but that was worth noting. Communication services, though, one of the positive sectors in session, a fairly long rally that uh, that particular component has enjoyed. So still appetite out there for some stocks. I want to take you to the Asian markets and how it is performing today. Uh, a quick look at some of the big majors as uh, Chinese stocks return to action after a week plus uh, closure. We've got 18 of a percent pop on the Shanghai composite, a fairly decent play taking uh, place on the ground there. Also, when it comes to retail numbers, we saw retail goods and dining during that Chinese National Day holiday returning to growth this year. That was a positive for the mainland. A private survey meantime on the services sector grew at its slowest pace in seven months. So a bit of good news offset by a little bit of weaker news for China. The Japanese market trades firmer and we've got Hong Kong in the green as well, seven tenths of a percent. Uh, China Yuan, quick look at uh, how the currency is trading. 7.126 is what we've got as uh, we see a return to trade around that. But uh, the dollar on the back foot versus the Chinese currency. Meantime, uh, investors closely watching that services sector data that I mentioned uh, at its slowest pace in seven months because of rising costs from operating expenses weighing on firms in the third quarter. The occasion services PMI fell to 513 
but stayed above the 50-point mark, which uh, is the difference between expansion and contraction. The reading kicks off a week of key events that could impact high-level trade talks between Beijing and Washington, which resume on Thursday. Wednesday, we'll see the release of the minutes from the FOMC's most recent meeting when policymakers voted to cut interest rates by a quarter percentage point, but diverged over the central bank's interest rate path. On Thursday, the US will unveil its September core inflation rate, and on Friday, we'll get a look at September's import and export prices. Steve. Ah, what's going on? Okay, thanks very much for that. Okay, the US has added 28 Chinese companies and public security bureaus. What's a public security bureau? I've never heard of a public security bureau. Anyway, maybe our next guest will tell us. Uh, To an economic blacklist, the Commerce Department cited concerns over Beijing's treatment of Muslim minorities in northwest China. Several key Chinese firms were added to the list, including Hikvision, the world's largest maker of surveillance cameras. Well, Eunice joins us from Beijing. Eunice, always lovely to see you. I can't work out if tensions are increasing or decreasing. We have talks that people are getting excited about. But of course, there were some pretty blunt messages coming out of China yesterday saying there are things that are on the table and things that are off the table. What's your take on this? Well, first of all, the Public Security Bureau that you're talking about, that's just uh, another entity of Chinese police. So there are various uh, layers of police here and state security. So that's that's one of them. But um, the uh, but you're right. It's, it's a very confusing uh, situation where we have uh, the vice premier, Liu He, confirmed today by the, the Commerce Ministry, is going to be heading to Washington for high level discussions on Thursday and Friday with his U.S. counterparts, the uh, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. But then on the other hand, uh, those talks are going to be probably kind of awkward and complicated because the U.S. Commerce Department had also announced today that uh, it is blacklisting 28 Chinese entities. That includes eight high-tech firms uh, because of uh, uh, violations, human rights violations of the um, Muslim population that is out in China's far west. So, um, um, Hike Vision, which is one of the surveillance camera companies um, that's on the list, had uh, put out a statement uh, roundly criticizing the U.S. decision, saying that that decision is going to hamper efforts by global companies to improve human rights because it would deter international companies from communicating with the U.S. government. Now, prospects for a trade deal this week were already looking kind of shaky after a weekend report suggested that China was thinking of completely taking off the table state subsidies, which is uh, one of the uh, sore points and a very important demand uh, for the U.S., the White House economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, said that he still thinks thought things were going to be OK because uh, China had um, uh, recently bought uh, soybeans, uh, pork, as well as as wheat. And uh, President Trump said overnight that he was hoping for a big deal. However, uh, most people um, who I speak to, uh, other analysts and uh, China observers are very skeptical about what can be achieved this week. And a lot of people are saying maybe the only thing we're going to see this week is an agreement to meet again uh, by the two sides um, at the APEC summit in Chile, which is November 16th and 17th. Now, separate to that, uh, we had more economic news. Uh, first of all, the private Caixin survey uh, showed 
that there was um, uh, the services sector fell to a seven month low. But that was, um, you know, some of the growth there pairing back. But spending during the October Golden Week holiday did not disappoint. And uh, uh, that recovered uh, to many people, thankfully, from the previous year um, because of a greater interest in travel as we're as well as uh, going to the movies. Now, uh, broadcasts of U.S. basketball, though, uh, might not be as popular these days. Uh, and this is after another big story that we had here, uh, where the general manager of the Houston Rockets, which is an NBA team that has been beloved by the Chinese ever since uh, Yao Ming ended up playing on the team and became an international superstar, uh, that general mo- uh, general uh, manager had kind of uh, stepped into a a political landmine when he uh, tweeted his support for the protesters in Hong Kong. So that just set off a a torrent of criticism by people on the mainland, also uh, mainland Chinese uh, backers of mainland China, including the uh, businessman um, Alibaba's Joe Tsai, uh, Tsai on his Facebook account, which is currently banned in China, by the way, um, had said that uh, American uh, that uh, uh, the American value of freedom of speech is very important, but that there are some what he described as third rail issues for Beijing, which includes support for Hong Kong and these um, protesters. So um, even though the the NBA uh, has been trying to distance itself now from this, uh, the general manager of the Houston Rockets has deleted the tweet. The financial fallout has been very swift. In fact, the Chinese Basketball Association, which has a cooperation with the NBA, has suspended that cooperation. They've also canceled all four NBA games that were scheduled um, in uh, China on October 19th and 20th. And then the term Houston Rockets is now no longer searchable on the shopping sites for Alibaba as well as JD. So I think it just highlights some of the challenges that um, international companies are facing as they are uh, probably very reluctantly so kind of getting dragged into this uh, dispute um, and political flashpoint between Hong Kong and Beijing. Guys? I have learned so much from your hit, perhaps more than I've learned from any hit for ages. Thank you so much. I know what PSBs are now. I know how <laughs> I know how to say Hike Vision. Apologies for my mispronunciation. I've actually been on their That's website right. looking at their devices. And I now know a little bit about US uh, basketball as well, which is, a, which is a bit of a grey area for me. Thank you so much, Eunice. Always a pleasure. Win-win all oh, I'm around. glad you're paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> I was paying attention, generally. Yeah, I have to when you talk. Well, hopefully we can learn a bit more from Rory now as well about China. Rory Green has joined us, Asia economist T.S. Lombard. In fact, uh, very interesting notes because we're all been gauging the impact of the the trade war with China. And the window into that has traditionally been exports, Chinese exports. And uh, if you look at the numbers, we all just focused on the exports to the United States and that's been down. But if you bury just a little bit deeper, there's been an impact to Europe, South Korea, Australia, Southeast Asia, but an improvement when it comes to Japan and Taiwan. But you make the point that if you look buried beneath some of these numbers that in fact, exports to Europe have been increasing. There's been a concerted effort by the Chinese to send more product to other key markets. Yeah, that, that's right. So for Chinese exporters, when their largest uh, export market shut, basically, with the US and these tariffs, when we spoke to them, they said, we're reorientating production, we're cutting prices, and we're trying to sell into Europe, which is the, the only large major market left available to them. So you can see that with Chinese exports to Europe have actually done pretty well this year. And one of the reasons that the overall export growth is still just about positive 
Um, but the consequence of that is other Asian exporters, China's competitors, have really struggled in the European market this year. So Korea, Taiwan, Japan have had negative export growth to Europe for so 2019. So from the European lens, this is great news for, for profit margins because if those input prices are coming down, there's more competition to t- try and secure business here, then profits might be decent here just purely based on that import equation. Yeah, we should see, particularly from the import cost side of things, inputs, um, sort of components, and perhaps on the CPI side as well for consumers, these cheaper Chinese goods are coming through. That should be generally helpful for the Eurozone. how much it makes an impact at the sort of the macro level is remains to be seen. Really, sorry, I, I don't know, and this is extraordinary. You, you, your your big title of your piece on the twelfth of September, exporting deflation. Mm. Is there not an argument that actually those days are coming to an end, and that China will be exporting inflation, given the fact that there are many inputs that just are nowhere near as cheap as they used to be? Uh, the most key of those, of course, being labour. So yes, labor is, is more expensive in China, but over the, in the short term period, they'll, they'll still be exporting deflation via renminbi prices and just the sheer volume of exports they're sending out, uh, which is leading to greater competition with uh, Southeast Asia, with Northeast Asia as well. So that, that will continue to depress Chinese export prices. Uh, another piece from you uh, a week later was Beijing ready to accept slower growth. Now, again, I keep hearing these numbers that, that there is a level uh, below which China cannot accept or and certainly the, 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 the government cannot accept because there are social consequences. There are all kinds of demographic mm-hmm. issues as well. So accepting a lower growth figure than, say, 6 percent, where is this area where we start getting into danger territory for the Chinese economy between 6 and where? We actually think it's pretty low because the economy is much larger now than it was in the past. So the incremental growth needed to generate these new jobs is actually a lot lower than uh, than people think. So around 4% would probably be enough to get these new jobs into the market. Whether that's politically acceptable from their growth target perspective remains to be seen. But at the moment, we think Beijing is very happy with the current level of growth. They're not looking to boost it at, to an unsustainable level again. They're very much looking for longer term, sustainable growth, no risk of a, a credit crisis. So they, In that yes. context, then, where does that leave a trade war? Because there's been so much posturing coming up to these high level conversations mm. later this week from the Chinese side initially saying, well, we might take industrial subsidies off the table. That's been reported. And they're trying to seek to narrow the scope of those discussions. Quickly, uh, we've seen a response from Trump yesterday that, well, hey, trade does not going to be that quick, potentially. They, they so that's posturing. They originally want a more narrow scope because they couldn't get the big all income. I thought once the this initial is the talks, yeah, I so thought originally maybe, they couldn't maybe, get the big encompassing talks. Right. So the idea was to pick the lower hanging fruit where it was available. That's now we're hearing we that it's the wrong bits. <laughs> well, this, this thing, does the US want a small interim deal because a bigger deal is hard to get? Do the Chinese want a deal at all or do they want to wait it up for the long term? You know, how do you read all the, the different noise that we're hearing? So we read that China is willing to give up three key things. Trade surplus, so it's buying more soybeans, uh, more energy commodities. Second thing is limited moves on intellectual property, market opening. And the third thing is they would be willing to do something with the renminbi, some kind of stability with the currency to address, chi- uh, address Trump's currency war. Well, with all due respect of- to the Chinese, and again, uh, both sides have their the, the, the things that look really obvious or not, 
The Chinese are going to need more uh, imported agricultural goods anyway. The Chinese are going to need more imported energy products until they can sort out their own sustainability domestically as well. So when you say they're giving up three things, at least a couple of them are a natural process anyway. And, And the third point I wanted to make about that is, haven't the surpluses been coming down anyway? I mean, since the tariffs came in, they've actually gone up, but overall they, they have they've come down a little bit. But you're absolutely right. These are three things that are not really, they don't cost China anything to give up. Uh, they're never going to make changes to the state-led economic model. So wishing for this sort of comprehensive deal is kind of a forlorn hope for, for Trump. So, so do you where, think there's where an we interim get, deal then? Do we just get a little I bit of something from the We either need a deal soon so the economic benefit can be felt by the US pre-election or there's, there's going to be no deal no deal before the election. And, and, and the soon, pre- deal soon or, or not. And the president's all. getting a lot of heat. I mean, he's getting heat over his his decisions uh, and his agreement with Turkey. Heat over, obviously, yeah. the stuff that's going on domestically with the Zelensky tapes and that. Mm-hmm. Heat over a whole host of it. His tax returns, it was a story yesterday. The yes. president needs a win at the moment, yeah. I would suggest. Potentially. Um, did you know that Rory's had a very bad night's sleep because he's got a young child? <laughs> <laughs> so we've all been there. Uh, I just wanted to thank you. We'll make this very Excellent. personal. So thank you, yeah. Rory, because uh, he's uh, got a young lad who's um, maybe keeping you up a little bit. You had a shift a last bit. night. Yes, I did. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> Caffeine and sugar. Caffeine and sugar is the way to go. <laughs> is that how we got through? <laughs> I think so. I can't remember how we got through. Rory Green, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Asia economist at TS Lombard. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.